joining us online, uh, stay tuned for Pastor Jack. which I think is very timely today about the sufficiency of Scripture. Can we trust the Bible to be the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice? And we're going to look at stuff that is from an archaeological standpoint all the way through the Scriptures. And I'm hoping that the men can take away and have some encouragement in knowing that when they're in the Word of God, they can trust that God is speaking to them as if He was sitting right there present in front of them in bodily form. And that's my hope that the men will take that away in the day where the scriptures are under attack. So just want to invite you out there. And then August 15th, um, our worship team is going to be at the um, park in Royersford. Um, I don't remember the name of it. My brain is Victory Park in Royersford uh, from 6 to 8 o'clock, right around that time, uh, delivering worship music to that community. So uh, some great things happening we are on the move. We are not backing down. We are going to keep fighting the good fight um, to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in everything that we do. So, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 14 to 15. And Lord willing, if God allows it, we will be finishing up that next week. And then I'm going to finish taking us through the my next time preaching of we're going to start and try to get through the whole book of Philippians. I want to finish that up, and then we'll see what the Lord has for there. So I uh, don't know why it sounds so hollow up here, but bear with us. Um, so if you want to open your Bibles, uh, we're going to have it up online. First John 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through verse 21. And I want you to understand when you're reading this with me, this is something I want to really encourage you to draw you in, is that God is speaking to you through his word. That's the way he communicates to us. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 in 1 John chapter 5. So please follow along. You're listening around the world and on Facebook, please follow along. If you have a Bible there on your chair with you, uh, please look at it with me. So beginning at verse 13. These things I have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know. Let me say that again. You may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything, look at the next four words, according to his will, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked before him. Verse 16, and we're going to be covering verse 16 next week in depth. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God. Notice that request there. He shall ask God. And God will, for him, give life to those who commit sins not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this, for that kind of sin that leads to death. Verse 17. Verse 17, church. All unrighteousness is sin. Not some, not a little bit. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. Verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We're going to cover that verse too next week. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do we see that happening today, church? Verse 20. Try not to get into preaching. I want to get through this. (laughs) And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This, boy, this is the gospel right here. Bam. This is the true God and eternal life. Without Christ, there's nothing. Little children, guard, put a sentinel up, guard yourselves from idols. So, let's dig in slide four, Cheryl. In our last time together, we had looked at how we got our Bible. We learned that from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's not up there, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correcting us, for instructing us in righteousness that the man of God should be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all the scriptures, the 66 canonical books that make up your Bible are theopneustos, breathed out by God. We learned that God breathed out what he wanted to be inscripturated into those human men back in that day. In slide four, I like uh, Scott Oliphant had what he had to say about the scriptures. Scott Oliphant says this: We should see the works. I'm sorry. We should see the words of Scripture as a lie. That's a problem people have. Let me say it again. <clears throat> we need to see the words of Scripture as alive. It's not a dead coffee table book, church. It's God's word. It's alive. 
They are the words of a living God who is speaking to us now through them. Viewed in this way or that way, our study of Scripture could never be a simpler, simple matter of gathering facts. The Bible is God's completed conversation with us about who He is, what He has done in and through His Son. Solid teaching there from Scott Oliphant. So then, <clears throat> from our study of the Scriptures, we learned this, church, that the Scriptures are from God. They are about God. They are about how God has revealed Himself to sinful fallen men and women. That's all of us. Throughout all of the Scripture, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, God reveals His truth. God reveals his character, his divine plan, as how he redeems mankind. Right. It should be clear to all of us by now that you and I have the responsibility, not a casual thing, the responsibility to study the scriptures, to meditate on the scriptures, and put what is taught into the scriptures into practice into our everyday lives. God does still, in fact, guide his people to do what brings him pleasure but he does it through his word. Amen? He has given us his word, the scriptures, for our learning, for our understanding. The Bible gives us instruction on how we are to live our lives while we are here on earth. Throughout all of it, we develop skills and knowledge and insight, but we rob ourselves of that when we don't spend time in the word. And Bruce and I have pounded that home in this church. Open your Bible. Get into the Word. Uh, put up slide 5 and 6. Slide 5 first. <clears throat> this is the confidence. This is the complete insurance we have before Him. That if we ask anything, if we make any request that is in agreement according to His will, church, He hears us. Put up slide 6. Here's what the readers 2,000 years ago saw. And this is the confidence Perusia, that we have before him, that if we ask the Eto Methea according to his will, he hears us. Again, what is John doing? He's continuing this summary as to what he's been teaching us. So I want to take a moment and look back on how and what John said concerning prayer. You see, prayer is you talking to God. And he dealt with that back in chapter 3. Put up slide 7 for me. <clears throat> slide 7, thank you. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, meaning what? If our heart does not condemn us, make us feel guilty, if our heart does not pronounce us to be guilty or indict us, we have this confidence, this complete assurance and boldness before God that whatever we ask, we receive from him because... We keep his commandments and do habitually and continually the things that are pleasing in his sight. So in our last time together, as we looked at this verse, these verses, we looked at how John began this verse with the word beloved, if our heart does not condemn us. <clears throat> that word beloved, in the Greek, it's a very emphatic language. He, he, he's not just going, hey, you know, beloved. He's like, beloved, hear me, beloved. Listen, it's very emphatic. That's what, that's what we're trying to get across here. Okay, slide eight. 
I think John had a real concern for his readers, as well as you and I, who are experiencing struggle with a condemning heart. Let me ask you these questions this morning. You see up on the screen. <clears throat> are you, or any of you, struggling right now with a condemning heart? Think about that. Engage the scriptures. Are any of you right now struggling with a condemning heart? Perhaps you're doing something that you know that you're not supposed to be doing, but you're doing it anyway. You know it's sin. You know it's wrong. But somehow in your mind you've gotten twisted because of the world, and now you're all of a sudden justifying, well, I'm doing this because of this. Think about that. I want you to notice what's called a conditional clause in this word, the word if. If our heart does not go on or continue condemning us. Church, do we get alarmed or anxious because the real judge, that's the Lord, knows more about what's going on inside of our hearts than the prosecutor? That's our conscience. Do, do we get anxious about that? Because we know God knows what's going on in those very deepest recesses of our heart. He knows more than that prosecutor, which is our conscience, that prosecutes us when we know we're doing something wrong. Put up slide 9. Paul addressed this in Romans chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. Paul says this, <clears throat> And in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Conscience, that monitor inside us bearing witness. And their thoughts, they're alternately accusing or defending them. Mm. On that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ. Hear me this morning. Hear me. One of Satan's most seductive weapons in his arsenal to this very day against you and I is that he tries to influence us to doubt our salvation. I know none of you all have to struggle with that. Think about it. One of the most seductive weapons he has is to try to get you to doubt your salvation. Well, the Lord couldn't possibly save me. He couldn't want me. I'm such a failure. You don't understand, Pastor Jack. I've lied. I've cheated. I've stole things that weren't mine. I have these impure thoughts. I hurl out profanity all the time. And I blame God when things don't go my way. I'm sure none of you struggle with that. Well, it's quiet in here now, Dr. Carter. And one of Satan's weapons is to get you to doubt God that he couldn't really save you. It's clear that doubts can erode our confidence. And our enemy Satan wants you doubting God. He wants you doubting his word. He wants you doubting the fact that you are saved if you truly are. But hear me again this morning. Church, listen. Any doubts, fears that you may have, listen, they will begin to fade away when you choose to repent and begin to walk in faithful obedience with the Lord. See that word, that, that word ask that's in this text here. What does that word mean? I had to ask myself, okay, John, what, what was going on through your mind when you used the word ask? I don't want you to miss this. See, the word ask 
is a lot more than just like asking for a bowl of ice cream or placing an order at a window. See, the word ask that, that John's using here in the text means to crave or desire. You're calling out because you're craving or you're desiring. So then, church, are the things that you and I are asking God for, the things that you and I are desiring or begging God for, those things that we're calling out to him for, are they for his glory and to accomplish his purpose? Or do they come from a heart that is centered on self? Think about your prayer requests. Write them down and look at them someday. Are they self-centered? Or are they things that you are calling out and craving because you want to accomplish something for him? Boy, it's really quiet now. I know that these are hard questions, but we really need to engage the scriptures and ask ourselves these questions Look at slide 10 and 11. <clears throat> Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. Search your hearts this morning. Are you troubled because your prayers are not answered? Why are you praying? Why do you want God to answer your prayers? What is the true motive behind the prayer? Is it purely selfish Perhaps something that feeds your own lusts and desires? Slide 11. Or, again, let us examine ourselves when we are on our knees in prayer. Do we really believe? Or is it a desperate cry in the dark, in the words of a poem, speaking to whatever God's may be? Is it some desperate experiment, doubtful of an answer? Is that what you're thinking when you're really praying, that, that he's left there like this? If it is, we must not be surprised if our prayers are not answered. But, church, if we are asking, as the text says, according to his will, <clears throat> we have that confidence, that complete insurance and boldness before God. You know, in our last time together, we learned what John meant when John used the word confidence. The Greek word parisian. It means boldness. It means assurance, a freedom of speech. The, the, the idea suggested in the Greek here, as when Paul was penning it, has the idea of almost a child approaching his daddy because he trusts his dad. Do you trust your dad? We looked at the last two words John used in this verse. Before God, prostantheon. We get that also from John 1.1. 1, 1. We learned those words back in John 1. Prostantheon, pros means forward-facing. Prostantheon has the idea of God the Father, God the Son facing each other, constantly moving towards each other in this most intimate relationship. Same words that John is using here. When you could face that, you could face God the Father. What an intimacy that we have that we rob ourselves of because we get so caught up in the world. What did John want his readers of that day to understand when he was penning this letter? I really believe that John wants us to understand that you and I, too, can have the same intimate relationship with the Father where we can have the confidence to speak freely with him 
and know without any shadow of doubt that he hears us. He knows you better than you'll ever know yourself anyway. Church, he wants us to have that intimacy with God the Father. In John, he finished up verse 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. <clears throat> There's three present tense verbs here in the text, action words in the Greek. Asking, receiving, keeping. You see them in the text? You guys remember your English? You got Dr. Carter here is an English teacher. I can help you. We ask, we receive, we keep. Listen. When our conscience is clear, when we've truly metanoia, we've repented, we've confessed our sin before God, and we've made that decision in our heart to turn away from those behaviors and walk humbly in obedience with him, when that conscience is clear, you and I can come to God the Father and we ask without fear, and we have the confidence that God the Father hears our requests. But understand this, church. It's when you're walking with the Lord, your requests are answered. So we receive, second verb, when the things we ask for are according to God's will and not our own. Well, how do we get that? Get in the word. If you want to understand God's will, get in the word. Here's the problem, church. Especially today, we often tend to treat God like he's some kind of this magic genie in a bottle where he will grant whatever requests we want. He's not that. That's not what it's all about at all. It's clear that we receive from him because we, and this is in the present tense, we continually strive and work to keep his commandments. But hear me this morning. If we're truly seeking God and his will and not our own, there are many requests that you and I would never, ever consider making. As you mature in the Lord and you grow in that intimate relationship with him and you understand you're here for his glory, not your own, and you're really mature, you're spending time in the Word, there's many requests that you would never even make. Right. Slide 12. I like what John Stott said in his commentary. He lists uh, what he calls six conditions that are to be met for our prayers to be answered. <clears throat> John Stott says this. Prayers must be offered in Jesus' name. Prayers must be for God's glory. Verse number three, from a heart that does not cherish sin. From a forgiven and forgiving heart. Are there people that you still to this day have not forgiven? And you think that you're in control because you have not forgiven them and you have not released them. That can hinder your walk with the Lord in a really tough way. They must be given with faith and backed by an obedient life. Church, hear me this morning. Please understand that our prayers must never be done for the purpose of selfish motives. John is saying that when we obey God's commands, we are then doing the things that bring pleasure to him. Number 13, Daniel Aiken says this. <clears throat> In his commentary, Daniel Aiken says, the fundamental characteristic of all truly Christian intercession is that the will of the person who offers prayers should coincide with God's will. 
Sometimes our desires are not God's desires for us. That ever happened to you guys? <laughs> Sometimes what we want is not what our Heavenly Father wills. Except that God's will is best. Do we struggle with that? Do we struggle with that? God's will is best. We think we have the answers and God already knows six months into the future and we don't even have a clue. Accept that God's will is best and it will trust his plan and purposes, even if it does not understand at the time. That's powerful. Let's uh, move on to verse 15. Slide 14 and 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Slide 15, you can see it up there. See, there's the word if. You know, that's another clause. If we know that he hears us, a kuo, and whatever we ask, we know that we have that request that we've asked of him. <clears throat> Again, that word if is a conditional word. John is saying if we know he hears us. You see, church, praying according to God's will means we must pray in faith. Consider with me what James had to say when we doubt God's word. Slide 16 and 17. James says this, but he must ask in what, church? Without what? Doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Same thing, slide 17. <clears throat> Again, if we ask, in, there's the word piste, faith. Do you remember what the working definition of the word pisteo is or pisteo is? Faith, trusting in, relying on, having confidence in, which is the opposite of doubting, right? Diakrinos, right? We ask in faith without doubting. So, what is James instructing us how we should ask? What does he mean by the word doubt? Well, it's very interesting the word doubt as the way James used it when he penned it. The idea here means to separate thoroughly or to be divided in one's mind. Okay, so he must ask in faith without doubting. Okay, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So think about that. To separate thoroughly, to be divided in your mind. See, this doubting that James is speaking of here has the idea of, of this inner moral conflict or a total distrust of God? Do you have that inner moral conflict right now where you're doubting that God will deliver? It, 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 I also, I kind of get the idea as I study this out in the Greek of, of, of maybe there's a divided allegiance. Uh, well, I want to trust God this much, but look at all these goodies the world's willing to give me over here. These will solve my problems if I get this... You know, I see people running to the, the turkey hills and 7-Elevens and they're buying the scratch-off tickets, running like this. Oh, if I just win this money, everything will be fine. And don't worry, God, I'll give 10% of it to the church. Liar. Liar. Is there a divided allegiance? Do we doubt God? We're trying to ask in faith, but is there this, this wavering back and forth? Is, is our minds being banged around like the surf of the sea being tossed 
back and forth? Are there times when I'm going through a trial, a really hard trial, that I can find myself withdrawing from God? Ah, uh, he don't hear me anyway. I've asked that request a thousand times. Your, your, your mind starts to divide itself from following what God tells you to do, and you start trying to do things your own way, or you start looking for blessings out in the land of idols. You can find yourself attempting to separate thoroughly from God because you get angry with them, or I have people that don't want to go to church anymore because they're angry with God. And I can trace a lot of that back to, well, how much time do you spend talking to him? How much time do you spend alone talking with the very God that knit you in your mother's womb? How much time do you spend in the Word allowing God to speak into you? When I'm doing counseling or I'm working with men, I try to get them to read just one chapter of Proverbs a day. Just one. I'm not asking him to write a thesis and go to seminary and spend 25 hours just one chapter a day. And I've asked this church many, many times, can you give God just a couple of minutes each day to that one chapter a day? I remember a college student, I think I shared this with you last year, who I was working with, who was uh, starting college, and he's like, um, Dr. Applebach, I don't have time to, to spend time in the scriptures. I'm, I got my syllabus, and I got these classes and all that. I said, well, do me a favor. Go to the book of Proverbs. Pick out whatever chapter you want in the book of Proverbs. Just one. And we're going to time it and see how much time it takes you to read one chapter. And so I hit the thing on my phone. Took him like less than two minutes to read a whole chapter. I said, you know, so-and-so, you can give the secular school you're going to everything, but you can't give God two minutes a day to speak his life-giving, life-giving Zoe word into your life to change and transform your heart so that you can glorify him when you're on that college campus. You can't give him two minutes a day. You know, people at home, they sit there in front of their TV for four, five, six hours, you know, numbing their brain with the channel changer. Ugh. But they can't give God two minutes a day? Shame on the church if we can't do that. Shame on it. We get angry with God, and we're not even giving God a chance to speak into our lives. What happens? Your life, relationships become very unstable. The doubting has the idea of this moral conflict inside, and now you're totally distrusting God. And all of a sudden, things in the world start to look very promising. Church, that is the type of thinking that is the opposite of faith. How many folks today often find themselves having one foot in God's camp and another in the world's camp. And they're trying to do this balancing act. Perhaps we may find ourselves not wanting to commit either because we do not want to give up maybe some sinful desires or perhaps we really do not trust God because we don't think he's going to give us what we think we need. Have any of you been there? Maybe some of you, some of you listening right now are struggling with that right now. Put up slide 18 and 19. Let's look at Romans 3, verse 15 and 16. Let the word of God speak into you. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and you're neither cold nor cold, 
nor hot, I'm literally going to vomit you out of my mouth. Put up slide 19. God knows that word, oida, oida, that's a very intimate, complete knowledge. I know your ergons, your deeds, your works. You're neither sukras, cold, or you're not even zestas, hot. I wish you were hot or cold. Church, let's truly be honest this morning. How many of us find ourselves disputing with God because God allowed a painful trial to happen to us in the first place? God, if you loved me, you would not have allowed that to happen to me. So really, how many of us find ourselves disputing with God or arguing with God because he allowed this painful trial to happen to us in the first place? <clears throat> and then what do we do? We become the judge, jury, and executioner because we put God on trial. And then we have this, this divided mind. What ends up happening to a believer? Well, the rest of this verse answers the question. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Let me ask you this. Be honest with God. Forgive me. I'm insignificant. I really am. Just, I'm asking these questions because my, my, my goal is to draw you into the text. I want you engaging the life-giving word of God. Forget me. Just think about this. Do you have any turbulence in your heart lately? Any real turbulence in your heart? A seismos, the earthquake in your heart that's just erupting. Hear me this morning, church. The true believer who doubts God, doubts God's trustworthiness, and that's an affront to God because God never lies and he never lets people down. You see, this person's request really isn't a request at all. Why? Well, think with me. He or she foolishly does not believe that God will honor the request. So this person is tossed back and forth and driven by all of the problems of life that is completely now out of control. Slide 20. Is your life out of control right now? Is your heart unsettled? Your life is unstable? Hear me this morning. Let me just be clear. When a person does not trust in God, the only thing left is go, to go from bad to worse. And that's a really, really sad place to be, church. James gives us the outcome of this in verse 7 and 8. Slide 21. <clears throat> For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways unstable in all his ways. God, it's not in your life. Your job's unstable. Your relationships are unstable. Everything's unstable. What can we draw out of this verse? I want to go down. I want to exegete. I want to go down in and draw out and say, James, what did you mean when you talked about somebody being a double-minded man, James? Greek word is dipsukos. It means two-spirited. The idea here is that the person's soul is divided between God and the world. And although this person may claim to be a Christian, 
He may say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower. His actions, his way of life, his talking, thinking, acting, behavior really reveals that he does not belong to the Lord. So this begs the question, how does this make a person an unbeliever? Well, think about it. When the trials of life come crashing at your door, what do we do? Do we just turn completely away from God to human resources rather than trusting in the Lord for answers and help? <clears throat> Here's another question. Where do you and I turn when trouble comes? Who do we turn to when the trials come smashing at our door, the thalipsis, those pressing into the tight, uncomfortable places in life when we hear critical news where do we turn when the trials come? Who do we turn to? Hear me this morning. The more intimate and closer a person is to Christ, the more that person prays to Christ. Listen, prayer is a relational act, church. It's a relational act. Slide 22. John Wesley says this. Any Christian worthy of the name should spend at least four hours a day in prayer. I can't get people to spend one minute. Slide 23. Consider the promise of God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. <clears throat> Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. It works like this, you see. When you believe that your prayer comes to your heart from the Spirit of God. <clears throat> you may be sure that an answer to your prayer will also be given from God. If I am surrendered to God, and if any, if my con one concern is to please Him, as I pray, I feel and know that this petition has come to me from God, and I will pray with confidence. I will pray with assurance. Imagine God prompting you to pray for somebody. Imagine God the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart and giving you the unction to pray for somebody. He says, I feel and know that this position has come to me from God. And I pray with confidence. I pray with insurance. Slide 24 and then 25. He goes on to say, Are you concerned that you do not love as much as you ought? Tell him about it. <clears throat> Ask him to shed his love abroad in your heart, and he will do so. Are you concerned about some sins that cast you down? Slide 25. Pray this confident prayer. It is the will of God that you should be delivered from sin. So pray for it. Pray for it. Are you concerned that your heart shall be clean? Well, offer David's prayer. What did David pray in Psalm, I think it was 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Dr. Jones says, and I assure you on the word of God and on his character that he will answer you and the blood of Christ will cleanse you from all sin 
and all unrighteousness. Slide 26, John Stott again. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God. Boy, do we sometimes do that when we pray? Or from bending his will to ours, like we're trying to use prayer to convince God to change his mind, even though he's immutable and he never changes. <clears throat> but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, align it with it, align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will, God, be done. Amen. So church prayer should no longer be done only in desperate times. We should get down on our knees and know that we are speaking to the Father who loves us, sent his only unique son to die as a sacrifice for us to pay our sin debt in full. We come to him knowing that he hears us. Let me close with some of what John MacArthur had to say in slide 27 and 28, and then we're done. <clears throat> to pray in Jesus' name is to pray consistent with who he is with the goal of bringing him glory. I, let me say that again. I want that to sink in. I really want that to sink in, church. Let me say that again. This is from Dr. John MacArthur. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray consistent with who he is with the goal of bringing him glory. Praying according to God's will not only brings glory to the Son, but joy to the believers. When obedient believers delight themselves in the Lord, listen, look at this. He will plant the desires in their hearts for what glorifies him. And you know you're maturing and growing in the Lord when the desires start to shift away and start shifting to things that bring glory and honor to him. When the things that you're pursuing in life have a different flavor to it and you're starting to notice, you know, I want to do this job because I want to put Christ on full display. I don't care if you're mopping the floors at a McDonald's or you're the CEO of a big million-dollar company. Think about that, church. He will plant the desires in their hearts for what glorifies him. And then I'll stop at slide 28. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. His desires will control their prayers. Do you notice his desiring, his desires, do you sense that to start controlling your prayer life? Start, you start praying for things you never really prayed for before? You start praying for people that you really weren't praying for before? God's answer to those prayers will glorify him, bring believers' wills into line with the purposes and fill them with joy. You know, at CBMC, uh, we have the perfect 10 card. And the idea is to take that card out of your wallet and find 10 people you want to pray for. You want to see them come to a saving faith in Christ or to be delivered for something. Why don't you go home today and see if you can actually write out 10 people that you can pray for and see what God does in their lives as you're praying for them consistently. But that also involves you being intentional about building a relationship with those people. Even people you may not really like to be around, 
Because God will use that to change you. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I sense there may be some people here this morning that have turbulence in their hearts, struggles in their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would ring strongly in their hearts with your word. Lord, that you would plant in them a desire and a hunger to feast on the nectar of your Zoe word, your life-giving word, Lord, that they would be strengthened. Lord, I know we're in the last days. I know that you could really come at any time, Lord. I, I often think, what will we be doing when you come? I hope it's something that's productive for you. And Lord, if there are people listening this morning somewhere around the world on Sermon Audio or they're listening on Facebook right now and they're struggling and they don't know you, I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts and that they would surrender their life to you and they would come to a saving faith in who you are. Because, Lord, I know now is the time for us to get right with you. And, folks, if you're listening around the world and you're not, you have not come to a saving faith in Christ, believe this. Christ died so you could live. He shed his blood on that cross at Calvary to pay for your sin debt in full, past, present, and future. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that you would, all of you that don't know him, would, would, would uh, have an open heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word that you would trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please look up and receive God's blessing. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, we're gonna have